Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Over the past year, as the COVID-19 pandemic led to strict state and local policies around public health and safety, as well as education, greater focus has also been placed on the work of state and local policy makers, and in particular, the role of governors. To help shed light on the challenges of running a state in crisis and facing the criticism therein, the supporting cast welcomes Gray Davis, 37th governor of the state of California. In this episode, Governor Davis speaks about growing up in Los Angeles, attending Harvard School in the 1950s, and how a chance encounter with a kind and encouraging Harvard teacher, Nat Reynolds, changed the trajectory of his life forever. Governor Davis also discusses his time at Stanford and Columbia Law before serving in the war in Vietnam, where he earned a bronze star. Seeing firsthand how, in his words, low-income minority soldiers bore the brunt of combat in far greater numbers than his white counterparts, Governor Davis was inspired to address this inequality through the pursuit of politics, holding various statewide positions before being elected California governor in 1998. Lastly, Governor Davis speaks about his trademark stoicism, a characteristic he credits to both the game of golf and a cherished friendship with L.A. Mayor Tom Bradley, and a trait which aided him through the inevitable ups and downs of politics including the 2003 recall. Gray Davis on governing California, his passion for education, leading through crisis and keeping a level head. This is The Supporting Cast. Welcome to the supporting cast. Great to be with you, Eli. Great to be with you. It's a real pleasure to have you here, a leader for the state of California, when, when really a time when the work of governors, uh, the work of local policy and health policy are kind of under the microscope in good ways and bad ways, maybe, but a real pleasure to have you here with us. But first, before kind of getting to that, the first question I'm asking everyone is, how are you doing personally? This has been uh, a difficult year for everyone. How has the last year been for you and Sharon and your family? Well, we've actually uh, adapted well. It's just the two of us here, so we enjoy being together. The work is, I would say, as productive as before, maybe a little more so. And it teaches you a lot of things, but I think most importantly is that what really matters is the health and well-being of the people you love. And if they're doing well and they're healthy, then everything else is a bonus. Absolutely. And you, not only are you working at, at Loeb and Loeb, an international firm in the LA office, but you're doing public service work as well? Uh, yeah, in a couple of ways. I was part of the um, Economic Recovery Task Force that Governor Newsom put together about May of 2020. And it had everyone from community leaders to uh, Bob Iger and um, Tim Cook of Apple uh, and uh, the head of Netflix, a whole, whole bunch of prominent people. And the whole idea was to put together about 100 people representing the range of California and figure out how 
we can lift everyone up, not just the people doing well, not just the people in the middle class, but lift everyone up. And yeah. we had some successes. Because we started in May, I would say half of the presentations and half of the discussions were about COVID and then when we would come out of it, how we would come out of it, how business would prepare, how individuals would prepare, when would school open. We kind of solved problems as we went along. And I remember yeah. one big problem was getting the entertainment industry, management and labor to agree on the protocols they would have to observe if they, if they mm. had filming, particularly if it was indoors. And, and he asked the people on our board, both labor and, and management, to sort of join those discussions. I think we added some impetus to it. And by around, um, don't hold me to this, but I want to say by the fall of 2020, we, meaning the industry and unions had come together on a protocol that worked and we got that industry up and running. And the good thing about California, everyone knows that we were erring on the side of health. So this was a healthy yeah. place to work. Plus, there was a way that the uh, public health officer in L.A. County would sign off uh, Barbara Ferrer. And what are the prospects for economic growth in California right now? I mean, the vaccines we were just talking before we got on that this sort of miracle that these vaccines were developed in the last 12 months or so. How are you thinking about the economic recovery of the state of California kind of from this point forward? Uh, well, I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, uh, yeah. First of all, I want to tip my hat to the medical researchers uh, and scientists, many of them American, but some of them international, that contributed to the development of three vaccines. The world record was four years. They did this in a year. And that wow. is not only the best, but it may be the only way we get out of this pandemic. Uh, but I also want to tip my hat to all the uh, medical personnel, the frontline workers, the paramedics, the doctors, uh, the truck drivers, uh, the grocery workers, the pharmacy workers, all the people that had to go to work early on when we knew very little about this disease. And they suffered disproportionately in terms of coming down with the disease and unfortunately in terms of people who, who, who passed on. So they are the real heroes. The scientists and the medical researchers, I think, should literally get the Nobel Prize. And because this is not just a problem mm -hmm. dealing with America, this virus brought 184 nations' economies to their knees without wow. firing a shot. Uh, I think this is the most significant thing that's happened in a long time, that the whole world is now as available to it vaccines that will help lift them out of this pandemic. A lot of focus is on those first responders, frontline workers, medical researchers, of course, but there's also a bit of a spotlight on governors as well right now. There's And, and for different reasons, right. there's the governor of New York who's facing his own problems for kind of separate reasons. There's Governor Abbott in Texas and DeSantis in Florida. And obviously Governor Newsom is facing quite a bit of, of criticism at the moment. And I wonder if someone who's sort of been there and faced it kind of unlike almost anyone else, what's your perspective on the role of a, a governor and maybe a California governor during a crisis like this, what are the things as we're sort of looking at Governor Newsom or other governors around the country and trying to figure out, are they doing what they're supposed to be doing to keep us safe? What perspective can you provide on that role at a time like this? Well, first, I want to say I think the governor is doing a very good job, all things considered. Remember, there's no playbook for this pandemic. It's been 100 years. Yeah. If anyone's alive and wants to come forward and tell us how to do this, fine. But to date, <laughs> nobody has. Uh, so. They make a zillion decisions, plus the 50, actually 61 health directors up and down the state of California. They have kind of the last word in their counties. So it's not just one person making all these decisions. But yeah. I do think, big picture, I think we're between 18 and 20 million shots in people's arms in California, which is 5 million more than any other state. 
Wow. And if we were a country, we would be the sixth largest vaccinator of any country on earth and China and the United States. Is that right? California? So we're wow. doing a very good job getting shots in arms. And the governor has worked closely with President Biden in getting sites open like the Oakland Coliseum, Cal State LA. City did a good job getting Dodger Stadium. Same thing with where the San Diego Padres play down in San Diego, Petco Park. So getting more sites, getting the vaccine out here and getting retired military, retired medical personnel, even student nurses, the volunteers to inoculate people, all that has to come into place. Get the vaccine, get the vaccine sites and get the vaccinators. And he's really done a good job and so has everybody else. I'm sure when you went, it was a positive experience. Everyone was yep. young people, positive and upbeat giving. It just made you feel good. Yeah, absolutely. So the whole experience is very positive, but it's a huge logistical undertaking. We've done nothing like this since World War II in terms of trying to mobilize the whole country to do something. Well, and the, the other difficulty is that the knowledge around the disease was evolving, right? At first, Correct. it was we weren't sure about masks because we thought that the, the PPE needed to go to frontline workers. And then we realized how, how important masks really were. There was a, a period where we thought it was a surface-borne illness where right. we had to scrub everything down, and that was the most important thing. And then we right. realized, no, it's actually the proximity, and it's an airborne illness. So it must be incredibly difficult to not just have all the facts, but when the facts are evolving at, at such a speed. Yeah, I mean, it's the science changes. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, you've got to use the best science you have at the time you make decisions. I, I Look, governors made hundreds and hundreds of decisions, and so have the public health officers, and probably nobody on the planet Earth would agree with all of them. But bottom yeah. line is, first of all, if you look at California, just remember how big we are. We are almost yeah. 40 million people. That's double the size of New York, 18 million more than Florida, which is the third largest state, and 10 million more than Texas. So by all rights, we should have the most deaths, the most people with the disease. On deaths, we rank about 28th or 29th uh, on a per capita basis. That means 27 other states are worse. On the positivity rate, which is very important, we've been testing people. So we're under 2%. I mean, Texas is like 9 or 10%, and Minnesota and Michigan, they're in their teens. We're under 2%. Only three states yeah. in America have a lower positivity rate. So we're doing a good job at containing mm. the virus, getting shots in people's arms. Schools are starting to reopen. Uh, elementary schools will open in California, and then middle schools before uh, the end of the, uh, the spring. Uh, by the fall, colleges, K through, K through college will be open. People will be going back to work. So while you can criticize here and criticize there, and trust me, if I had a small business that would close down, I would be upset. If I was a worker in a yeah. small business, I would be upset. I totally get that. Uh, but in, in, as a wage to small business, uh, the state set aside $2.5 billion in, in loans, which can turn into grants under certain conditions. Federal government, the same thing. That money's going out mm -hmm. the door as we speak. And hopefully we can uh, we can make it up to these businesses that had to be shut in order to control the pandemic. But if you look at the death rate, the infection the infection rate is also only four or five states at this point for the last week have uh, per week uh, are as low as we are. Uh, the positivity rate uh, and the inoculation rate. I mean, you can't do any better than California is doing. So you got to give everyone, the public health officials, the governor, the legislature, everybody, a tip of the hat because they certainly had something to do with it. And what about the toll on? On education. I mean, you ran for governor. Education was one of, if not the, the biggest issue that you ran on and I know is so meaningful to you. Right. How about all of these, uh, particularly kind of public school, low-income kids, many of them who, who get their meals at their public schools and who are 
many who, who don't have the resources to learn virtually the way we've made possible at Harvard Westlake, even for families who don't have the resources to afford them. How do those kids all catch up for maybe what will be a lost year for them? That's a very important point. The whole issue of education is a passion of mine. That's mm -hmm. my major undertaking as governor. And I do think that, I mean, I, I regret that we've not been able to open schools until Monday, Monday the 12th. However, it's perfectly understandable that teachers and support staff in the schools want to be vaccinated. Uh, the risk to kids, particularly in elementary school, is like 1% or 2% at best. They may carry the disease, but they're not likely to incur it. But, but, you know, teachers anywhere from their 20s, 30s to 40s and 50s and some older, you know, they had legitimate concerns. So, uh, again, Governor Newsom set up a special site at SoFi Stadium out near, yeah. uh, out in Inglewood and different places around the state. So we've just about got all those folks inoculated. By the end of April, you know, all elementary students should be back in school and middle school students will start coming back in in May. So now I'd, I'd love to get to your beginnings and, and your schooling, actually, Governor Davis. So you were born in New York, as I understand, and then right. your, your family moved to Los Angeles when you were a young person. Is that right? Yes. We moved when I was 11. My father had a job with Sports Illustrated. He'd worked for Time Life, the then parent company, and was coming out to California. So when I first went to California, I went to, uh, we came out in April, and it was in the middle of the school year. So I went to Good Shepherd Parochial School, which is part of our parish now, Good Shepherd. And, and the next year, I was fortunate enough to go to what was then called Harvard Military School. We actually wore military uniforms. Right. Um, it had eventually became Harvard Westlake with an additional campus on the west side, as well as the Coldwater cam campus, where I went for, from the 7th to the 12th grade. And what was your Harvard school experience like? Uh, it was just fantastic. Again, this was, I graduated in 1960. The 50s were a very, leave it to Beaver, Ozzie and Harriet generation. You know, World War II was over. Eisenhower was the president. Everybody was yeah. kind of calming down. Uh, the 60s was another matter. Uh, when I went to college, you know, I experienced that generation as well. But I, I loved the school. I mean, it got a great education. I think my graduating class was 50 or 60 people in those days. Now I think it's probably 100, 150. But they had great professors. A couple of them were Episcopal priests. There would be chapel once a week. The rest of the teachers were lay, lay people. But um, they trying to teach, teach you to be sort of a Renaissance man, to teach you art, culture. Uh, they're very big on everyone participated in athletics, whether it was football, baseball, basketball, or intramural uh, teams. Part of it was just keeping you busy and making sure you got enough exercise. But part of it was teaching camaraderie, te teamwork, uh, working, solving problems together. So I, I thought it was just a fantastic place and uh, probably helped shape my career as much as any other educational institution that I went to since. And why is that? Is that because of the sort of the, the military culture? I mean, you ended up going into the army later in life and serving in Vietnam, or was it you mentioned that Nat Reynolds, who many of yeah. us know as the former head of Westlake School, is a graduate of Harvard School and was a teacher and a much beloved teacher at Harvard School during your era. Yes. And I, one story I want to share with you. So I was trying out for the baseball team. I was a sophomore. I was not making the team. I ended up making it, but I was not making the team. And he came over to me, uh, Nat Reynolds. I don't think he was the coach, but he, he taught a, a couple courses and he happened to be on the field. In any event, whether he was a coach or not, he came over to me and he says, Gray Davis, I've been keeping my eyes on you. And if you just had a little ambition or a little get up and go, 
you might make something out of your life. And, and here's my home phone number. Of course, no email, no internet. This is the 50s. And that one conversation changed my life. Uh, I had no right? idea he knew I was even alive. Uh, huh. But that one conversation gave me so much confidence. If he had confidence in me, and I barely knew him, I didn't know he knew me, well, then I should have some confidence in myself. And up until hmm. that moment, I, I was very much a part of the 50s culture. I, you know, I enjoyed school. I worked hard, but I didn't obsess over getting all A's and all that kind of stuff. That changed yeah. my life, and I became much more dedicated. I became a very good student. I think I finished second in my class. I ended up being on the baseball team. I ended up being the captain of the baseball team. I ended up one year winning mm-hmm. the batting average award for getting the most hits. And I have to tell you a story about my mother. My mother came to three or four games. And one game, Harvard used to play its baseball on that field where they currently play football, I think. Yeah. Um, but right. in, back in the 50s and 60s, they would just put a log representing a left field fence. And if you caught a fly ball on the other side of the the log, it was a home run. And people would park, you know, 10 or 15 yards behind the log. So my mother had just bought a new red Chevrolet and it was in the first row. And I'm up hitting and I hit a ball and I hear hear someone on the bench say, I think that's in the jet stream. I think that's going to get out of here. And my mother, (laughs) I hear my mother's voice. She says, oh God, please let someone catch it. No interest did she have in whether I hit a home run, but a keen interest in seeing the ball not hit her brand new red Chevrolet. And happily, the best <laughs> of all things happened. The ball went over the log. It did hit the car, but hit it underneath. It didn't do any damage, uh, even cosmetic damage. It certainly didn't do any cosmetic damage to the to the car. So everybody was happy. My mother was happy. I was happy. And that was one of my two home runs. And your mother is responsible for, for naming you Gray? Is that right, as a nickname? Yes, because my real, my real name is Joseph Graham Davis, and right. they just decided that it's a junior, since that was my father's name. They didn't want me to call me Joe or Joe Junior, so they decided to call me Gray. I have no idea why, but <laughs> but um, I did meet several other people in the course of my life who were named Gray. Some whose mothers claimed they named them after me. I think today they shoot they would have called me Graham, or or something other than Gray. But you know, it is what it is. It worked for you. It worked right. <laughs> And so for those who don't know about Harvard School as a military school, what did that mean? What were the aspects of student life or school life that made it sort of a military school? Well, again, this was the 50s. I think we had an ROTC course once a week for an hour. And I believe we had formation twice a week, which meant you just assembled formation and they called the roll and then they would go off to classes. So yeah. the military was a part of it, and you did wear military uniforms, but in terms of its academic contribution, it was like one hour a week, not even one hour a day on the military. But it did sort of get me comfortable with sort of the high school version of ROTC, which um, for reasons I'll describe later when I went to Stanford, I needed to earn additional money. I, I uh, joined the ROTC at, at Stanford. I probably would not have known of that opportunity if I hadn't gone to Harvard. Yeah, so let's get there. So you go to Stanford, out of Harvard School, and you were part of the golf team, as I understand, and part of ROTC. Is that right? Yes. I actually tried out for the baseball team. That was my first love. But in the 1960, you know, people were like 6'2", 6'3", 240 pounds. God knows what they are today. Um, <laughs> so I decided I wasn't, because I played first base then, first base and shortstop. So then I decided to play golf. 
and I was a halfway decent golfer, not a great golfer, but the, the years I played, uh, like junior and senior year, you know, we had a pretty good team. We, we won about two-thirds of our matches, and we went to um, the NCAA championships in Broadmoor, and we came in about eighth the second day, but we had a bad first day. So, But it was just a good experience. It teaches you a lot about life. And one thing I uh, know about golf is – you can make the same swing, and the first swing produces a great shot, and the second swing produces a bad shot, and you just have to accept what life gives you. I mean, okay, good shot, great, but just don't go bragging too much because the same swing produces a bad shot the next time. So, matter of fact, I use that as a metaphor. I was I'm jumping ahead, but I went to Columbia Law School, and yeah. uh, years later, they asked me to give the commencement speech in 2009, and mm -hmm. so I said, uh, and there have been a million speeches that day, in part because Ruth Bader Ginsburg was celebrating her 50th anniversary. She graduated in 1959 from Columbia Law mm -hmm. School, and she was in attendance. So a lot of people paying tribute to her. So I decided I'm going to cut my speech down dramatically, and I told the students, I'm just going to give you a three-sentence summary. Now, I'm going to speak longer to, to uh, your parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents here, and if you want to listen, great. But if you just remember these three sentences, you'll get the gist of what I'm trying to communicate. School is fair. Life is not. Just <laughs> deal with it. And then I tell a story. Let's say you're a litigator and you go to court and the facts and the law are on your side and you assume you're going to win and you should win, but you don't. Yeah. Well, don't despair because at some point in your career, the exact opposite will happen. You go, happen, you go to court. The facts and the law will not be on your side. You should not win, but somehow you do. And when that happens, <laughs> do not run around and tell everyone how smart you are. Just say a little right. prayer of gratitude. So <laughs> I've been kind of stoic in my life. I don't know. Golf had something to do with it. I tell people you have to be kind of zen-like to play golf because you have to accept what the game gives you with grace and humility because you need both. So do you feel like that stoicism helped you, especially in politics? And yes, absolutely. Because in truth, I mean, politics, my God, politics is a crapshoot of the first order. I mean, you're going yeah. around telling people, vote for me. Here's my experience, and here's my policy, and here's why I think it helps you, makes your life better. And some people will say yes, and some people will say no. It's the same thing. You may be more qualified. doesn't mean you'll win. Uh, you may have a uh, better campaign slogan, a better message. Might win, might not. So I find that most people who run for office are people of faith in one form or another. They, they just yeah. understand that they're laying it out there. They try not to take it personally. It's hard not to try not to take it personally if they lose an election. But it's just uh, just the roll of the dice. And where did that come from? Did that come from your family or from education or from playing golf? Or where does that perspective come from? I, or is I don't it... quite know where it came yeah. from, but, but it's really true. I mean, there's so many things that happen in life that are sort of unforeseen, unpredictable, fortuitous or unfortunate as a case may be. And that's not the end of the world. I tell people, if you get knocked down, everyone loses an election. I mean, uh, yeah. Abraham Lincoln lost about 10 elections uh, before he finally <laughs> won one. And then he, the second one he won was president of the United States. But even that one, I think it would, took 14 or 15 nominations before his name came to the top. They had tried to get a majority for lots of other people finally got elected. It turned out to be maybe the most consequential president we've had. So it's not whether you win or lose that matters, but how you handle what life deals you. Yeah. Just don't be bitter. Try and see the positive of it. 
try and find ways to you know, make, definitely get off the campus, get on your feet, get back in the game, and try and find you know productive things you can do going forward. And almost always yeah. there is a way to do it. So you mentioned when you were at Stanford that you ended up joining ROTC, but that wasn't the plan, right? There were some circumstances that led you to, to sort of join ROTC. Well, my parents had moved out here. They were here, I think, for eight or nine years, and unfortunately, they got divorced. I was accepted to Stanford Law School, and I was telling my mother how excited I was, and I could tell by her voice she was not, hmm. and that was not like her. So I said, well, what's the problem, Mom? And I said, she says, well, I didn't have time to tell you before, but your dad and I are getting divorced, and we're both moving back to New York. We're obviously moving to separate places in New York, but we're going back to New York City. Hmm. Could you find a law school closer to us? So this is... You know, back in the day, there was no early acceptance, none of that stuff. And the yeah. announcements came out around April or May. So I had to scramble around. And I eventually got into Columbia Law School with, I think, four days to go before school opened. And I had a couple other options in case that was not possible. While I think Harvard Military School, now Harvard Wesley, probably helped shape me as a human being, Columbia Law School kind of toughened me up. I remember... In those days, there was no internet. So you had to be a, a world sprint champion to get from the lecture hall to the library while the research books you need are still there before they're taken out and never returned. Underline, never returned, hmm. thereby disadvantaging everyone else in the class, which is obviously a bad thing. So hmm. I would have to get on the subway and go down to Fordham, find the research books there. But, you know, that's just life. I remember my first, uh, second day at Columbia Law School, everyone was sort of congregating after class around the refreshment area, just vending machines. And I heard one person talk to another. He says, well, I've had like my last date for the year. And I thought, <laughs> my God, the guy, this is early September. The guy's not going out on a date until January 1st. He didn't mean the calendar year. He meant the academic year. He was not going out till end of May when we wow. graduated. So wow. that kind of dedication I had not seen before. But it did, you know, force me to be more disciplined and work harder. And I think that turned out to be a useful asset in life. But then following Columbia Law, I know you clerked a bit, but then you went into the military, you went into the army. Is that right? Yeah, because I had a two-year commitment. I mean, ah. um, I actually became a, a, a lieutenant when I graduated from Stanford, mm -hmm. and I was kind of accruing seniority. So by the time I went to trainings, which was at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, for the Signal Corps, there's five combat arms, signal and engineering artillery, infantry, and Air Force. Um, and just to clarify, you had the two-year commitment because of the ROTC you had done at Stanford? Right. Is that right? Right. Got it. I mean, they had a deal that if there was no war, it's possible to get a six-month program, but there was a war in Vietnam by that point because I'm graduating from Columbia Law School in 1967, so we were well into the war. Got so it. I went to service December 1967, and I went to Vietnam in December of 1968. But I got out effectively December 1st, 1969. And having lived in New York at Columbia Law School and having lived in California, I just knew which state I wanted to live in. So uh, <laughs> I, I made plans to come out to California. The only place I ever interviewed law firms was in Los Angeles, not was not in New York. Got it. Not that New York doesn't have great law firms, but just, I mean, in my day, you had to, uh, when I clerked on Wall Street one summer, you had to bring an extra shirt because there was no air conditioning on the subways. So wow. you went down there, you're perspiring like the Dickens, <laughs> and you had to take your shirt off and put another shirt on. So uh. New Yorkers are tougher. <laughs> Californians are more in innovative, more creative, uh, I think more helpful in terms of uh, predicting and inventing the future, but, but New Yorkers are tougher. 
Well, tell me about your Vietnam experience. I mean, when you left, you were a captain and you, you had earned a bronze star. What about that experience? What values or virtues did you learn through Vietnam? Well, I learned a lot of things. First of all, I was part of that 1950s generation. I don't know if you've ever heard of Norman Rockwell, but, sure. but he used to paint, paint these sort of idyllic pictures. Everyone was happy. Everything was positive. The sun was always shining. And th that was kind of how I was. So when I went to Vietnam, I just assumed that everybody was doing their part. But when I got over there, it became very clear to me that most of the actual combat activity was being done by African-Americans uh, and uh, Latinos. Hmm. And that even people with my background were far and few in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, my job was largely administrative, but I did have at least five days a week I was on a helicopter. And I went to various division base camps. There were seven of them up and down the state just to make sure these radios. And all we had was line of sight FM radio. They were mm. about this big and about this wide, almost the exact size as the first cell phones, if you can recall, that used to come in right. a, a, yeah. like a little briefcase. They're almost identical to that and obviously only worked line of sight. So acknowledging what you had said about people of color kind of bearing the brunt of the combat in Vietnam and folks like you who were white soldiers or white men from middle or middle upper class backgrounds not facing that and seeing that inequality, was that part of what spurred you into wanting to make a difference in politics? Yeah, absolutely. I just felt this was wrong yeah, and didn't know what I would do about it. But I came back to practice law starting in January 1970 with a firm in Los Angeles. I had volunteered in a U.S. Senate race that John Tunney won in 1970, but really hadn't done anything significant uh, in, in politics. And someone I met in the Tunney campaign, Nelson Rising, was the chairman of Tom Bradley's campaign, then a council member mm -hmm. who had been in the police force for 20 years and eight years, eight or 12 years in the city council was running for mayor the second time. I uh, lost the first time. And I was part of that campaign. And uh, they asked me to raise money. I said, I've never raised money for anyone in my life. And they said, well, don't worry. This is a fellow named Max Bolesky, who was chairman of his, used to be chairman of Xerox, just listen to him. He'll tell you what to do. So I spent a lot of time with Tom Bradley. And sometimes it would just be he and I driving around going to meet people. Wow. And I just saw what a decent man he was. And I saw some of the inappropriate way that people behave towards him and some of the positive ways they behave. And his demeanor never changed. He was hmm. stoic in that regard. I may have hmm. learned some of that from him. Sure. But he's just a man of great presence. He ended up being mayor for 20 years. He got the subway started in Los Angeles, which I'm absolutely convinced will now be completed in my lifetime <laughs> uh, and, and definitely yours and did a lot of good things. So, but I did that in part because I just, I had actually gave up my law practice, which is not a major issue at that point. I'd only been there three years. Figured I could go back to the practice of law. But just spending that time with him was so great. And flashing forward, when I ran for governor, uh, I was in third or fourth place, depending on how you want to count it. Because in 1998, for the first time ever, we had an open primary, which meant every voter got the same ballot. So you could vote for a Republican for governor, a Democrat for lieutenant governor, or somebody, uh, Secretary of State, Green Party. So there's actually four candidates on the ballot. If you count that, I was in fourth place. And he came out and endorsed me. And that time he was quite ill. So all mm -hmm. he could do was stand there while his chief assistant, Maury Weiner, who's no longer with us, either kind of read this wonderful positive tribute. And I had to just really hold it together because it, it, it was moving me. And uh, Wow. But, so I just had always had a wonderful relationship with him. I remember one time when I was the controller 
he called me up and he had um, Nelson Mandela was coming into Los Angeles and I happened to be in Sacramento. He said, if you come down, he's going to be in my office with Maxine Waters and just you and I and Maxine Waters and a couple of members of my staff. And that was really a great honor and privilege wow. for me to get to, to get to know him. So uh, Nelson, certainly Tom Bradley influenced me just in his grace, his demeanor, his willingness to put up with a lot of BS that most people wouldn't and just never let anyone think he was rothful at all by it. And I don't think he was, but if he was, nobody knew it. And your career in politics kind of started from there. And you were, I mean, let me kind of read this off. You were chief of staff for Governor Jerry Brown when you were around 30 years old, California State Assembly member, California State Controller, California Lieutenant Governor, and then the 37th Governor of California. Was there a role among those that was most formative, that you learned the most from, that you feel like really prepared you best to become governor of California? Well, I'm going to pick two. Okay. I really enjoyed the controller job. Everybody thinks you're just wearing green eye shades, but uh, <laughs> the controller is on so many important positions. He's one of three people on the Franchise Tax Board. He's on uh, the two pension funds, CalPERS, CalSTRS, victim of violent fund. He's on about 54 boards. Actually, now it's up to about 70 boards he's on. He's usually one of three people, one of five people. It all has to do with allocating some financial help for for hospitals, for schools, for water policy, you name it. Plus, would return money, it's called unclaimed property, that people would unknowingly leave in bank accounts or a dividend check didn't get to them or a wage check didn't get to them or a security deposit wasn't returned. So that was fun, providing that. And there was no internet in those days, so it was much more complicated. And even though that was more intriguing and, and arguably had more responsibilities than any other job short of being governor, I really enjoyed being lieutenant governor because it put me as a region of the University of California, which is one of the great assets of this state. No university system in America has anywhere near the 10 campuses we do. To say nothing of the Cal State system, which is a four-year uh, university with 33 campuses, to say nothing of 106 community colleges. So it's really remarkable. And to be part of sitting on the trustees of the Cal State system and the regions of the UC system, I really enjoyed that and learned a lot about education, the politics of universities. We could work on big things like trying to encourage faster graduation rates. It was creeping up to about five, five and a half years to, to get your undergraduate degree. We helped get that down closer to four years, which I think is where it is now. And can I ask you just when you were chief of staff for Jerry Brown and you were so young, I mean, he ran for president at one point during that time, right? In 1980. Twice, twice in 76 and 80. And then didn't that leave you in many ways to, to help run the state in his absence? Is that right? Well, you know, the press always said that. And yeah, but let me make this point clear. He got elected. And so I always would check with him. And we, it was very good about make himself available again in a day when I don't think we had cell phones in the 70s. No, we didn't. So I think we had pagers. Anyway, there was a couple times a day where I knew he would call me and I would run over all the things that he had to give me permission to do or not do or hold off on whatever. So I always try and solve a problem by thinking, what would he do? But then I would always check with him generally first thing in the morning or, or around five or six at night. So the press always thought, well, Governor Davis make these decisions. No. Governor Davis didn't get elected until 1998, and I was chief of staff to someone else who was governor, and my job was to you know, kind of keep the trains running until he got back home. So then you become governor. You become the 37th governor of California. Can you talk about just some of the things that you were most proud of from those years, maybe first? Yes. Education was my passion, and yeah. I really believe 
that if young people can develop a sense of self-confidence, which can be done through teachers, mentors, and we started, we, we created about 250,000 more mentors than the state had when I became governor. That was a big passion coming directly from the conversation I had with Nat Reynolds. Yeah. I just know how I reacted to my education, and I just wanted every child to have every opportunity. So we greatly increased scholarships and, and grants. Uh, we created something called the Merit Scholarship Award. There was a standardized test in my day in math and English. And we said, if you get in the top 10% in your class, whether you're in Watts or Westwood or Wilmington, you get $1,000 scholarships. If you get on the math exam or the English exam or both, and they're given the 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. So you have six opportunities to earn $1,000 and the money can be used in private school or public school, you know, as long as you live. There was no limitation on it. Wow. That changed a lot of lives and made, I think, a big difference. And I still, even today, run into people who deferred using their college for 10, 15 years. And I run into people who know someone or have a relative or who benefit from the marriage scholarship. So that, that was that was a big deal. Yeah. So then probably the next most important thing was I noticed there were a lot of schools, particularly in poor areas and in the Central Valley, where they did not offer the mandatory courses that the University of California requires. So even if you're the valedictorian from some school in Bakersfield or Watts or Fresno, you can't go to a UC school because you didn't take the mandatory courses. So we required that all courses, we provided the funding, additional funding, so that the mandatory courses would be taught at every high school uh, up and down the state, and that made a big difference. And you you feel like your passion for education is directly linked to what Nat Reynolds and what he said to you on that baseball field? Yes. Not so much my path to education, but the importance of, of sort of taking life seriously and giving it your best yeah. and believing in yourself and working harder, all that resulted from that conversation with Nat Reynolds. Now, did he say all that? No, but he said, look, you can make something out of yourself if you just have a little ambition, a little get up and go. And I translated that into working harder, coupled with my my stoicism, I think comes in part from a lot of people, including uh, Tom Bradley, playing golf where you have to be stoic or you'll you'll go insane. And I think my interest in education stems more to my experience at Harvard, Stanford, and Columbia. Yeah, and how that shaped me, but my desire to work hard and succeed and and drive comes from Nat Reynolds. Wow, and then also, I mean, just reflecting upon the recall, and I imagine that stoicism played a big role in you handling that. And and you know, in hindsight, anyone who's watched the Enron documentary knows that things were a lot more complex than they appeared at the time. Oh. And but at the time, I'm sure that was that was a difficult thing to go through. And I imagine your stoicism and you being able to kind of take those types of punches helped. Yes, it did. It did. I want to say two things about that. Sure. There was a cartoon in the LA Times, maybe three or four weeks before the recall, and two women were waiting in the Pacific Ocean. And one said to the other, boy, the water is cold today. And the other said, yeah, that's another thing I blame Gray Davis for. So, (laughs) you know, it is what it is. The other thing I wanted to say was, unlike today, where there's a pandemic affecting the whole world, everyone knows that some of the economic closures, which hit people very hard, were necessary you know, to thwart the spread of the pandemic and we're now reopening schools and businesses. Nobody had a clue what I was talking about on Enron because the law that I inherited two years at 
the past two years before I became governor, but didn't come effective until the date I was sworn in, 1999. It kept ratepayers from paying any higher rates for electricity for four or five years, which was good for them, but bad for kind of cracking down on Enron because Enron was literally telling their suppliers to withhold power to San Francisco, withhold it to LA, withhold it to San Diego. Uh, and the utilities, when they had to, buildings were paying a thousand, two thousand times more for power. One, PG&E went into bankruptcy. The second, Edison, was on the verge of going into bankruptcy. But I could never communicate to ratepayers who were not feeling any pain why there was a problem. Six months after I was out of office, there was a video of an Enron general manager in Texas telling a plant in Las Vegas, which served San Francisco, are you busy this afternoon? No, not too busy. Why don't you go down for four or five hours? And there was all kinds of blackouts in San Francisco. Computers didn't work, automobile accidents. And that was four days after a meeting back in Washington when two Republicans from the legislature leaders and two Democratic leaders joined me. And all five of us said, no, we will not raise rates on ratepayers to compensate for the additional cost that you're demanding on utilities. Because the ratepayers didn't come up with this idea of deregulation. It was your idea, and it's not working. You know, I'll have the Department of Water and Resources buy the power. It's creditworthy, but we're not going to punish the ratepayers. Four days later, the power went off in San, San Francisco. So they were clearly yeah. sending us a message that, you know, we're going to show you who's boss. If that right. had happened before the recall vote, my chances would have improved significantly. Which shows you just the, the power of chance in a lot of this. Power of right? chance, right. Four months earlier, I may win the election, I may not, but it's going to be razor thin. Without it, they just think I'm from Mars. They don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, before we go, uh, Governor Davis, there are a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast, so I wanted to finish up with those. They relate to Los Angeles, where you live now. We are known for our films, our food, and our climate. So first, does Governor Davis have a favorite movie? Do you and Sharon have a favorite movie that you love to watch over and over again or one that you consider your favorite? Did you ever see a movie called The Producers? Well, I know the, yeah, that, that became a Broadway play. Right. As well? Yes. Yes. So that's about Carl Reiner and um, his great pal. Name. Mel Brooks? Mel Brooks. So they yeah. they have this theme that will make a movie about Hitler and we'll have <laughs> these great songs, Springtime with Hitler, and it will yep, bomb yep. and we'll get a big tax write-off and we'll make a lot of money. Well, right. As fate would have it, it's a huge success. In one sense, they're making an awful lot of money, but they, they have many more taxes to pay uh, rather than using it as a big writer for the rest of their income. So it's just falling down funny. Uh, <laughs> so that I love that one. And then I liked uh, Saving Private Ryan and any of those great epic movies about the great wars or uh, people rising to the occasion in very difficult circumstances. And even if that movie, if you recall Private Ryan, yeah, there was kind of fate how the hero of that movie, I won't spoil it if you haven't seen it, but how he was treated. And by the way, I was friends with Sherry Lansing. I was sitting next to her at the Academy Awards, and uh, Jack Delaney was sitting immediately to her right. Steven Spielberg had just been given the Best Director Award for Saving Private Ryan. She leaned over and she said, congratulations, you're going to win the Best Picture Award, which comes up next. Uh, but Shakespeare in Love, which was like a little right. pleasant romp, wins over this epic film. But, That's uh, right. That's right. And what's your favorite meal in Los Angeles? Is there a restaurant that you and Sharon just love or uh, a meal you like at home? Actually, we do, but I'll give you an answer to that question. Il Piccolino and Smago, which is in Beverly Hills, Il Piccolino is in West Hollywood. We like 
when yeah. I was with Jerry, in my Jerry Brown days, we used to go to El Adobe, uh, which was a Mexican restaurant right across from Paramount Studios on Melrose. Hmm. But my wife has a number of eating disorders, and so she's very careful about the food that she buys and how it's cooked, and I'm the beneficiary of that. <laughs> Got uh, it. So the best and healthiest food is at Casa Davis, but we do go out occasionally <laughs> to other restaurants. Got it. Got it. Thirdly, what's your favorite part of Los Angeles? Is there a street or a neighborhood or an area of town that you love? You know, I love the ocean. Mm -hmm. I love looking at the ocean. And people tell me, what should I do when I come to LA? I say, well, go to the ocean. And, mm -hmm. and they say, well, what should I, which direction should I head, north or south? I said, it doesn't matter. You'll just, it'll just enthrall you. I mean, you were to drive north, you'll you know, go to Malibu and you'll go up to, Keep on going. You'll you'll go up to um, Santa Barbara, which is great, and then keep on going. You go to Santa Maria, which is great. You want to go south? You'll go through the beach cities, Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Beach and Redondo Beach, and then you get to all the great beaches in Orange County and down to mm -hmm. San Diego. So it doesn't really matter. You just spend at least a half a day driving through some of the beach cities, and you'll see kind of what Southern California is like, which is very different than, than Northern California or the rest of the state. Lastly, I am the parent of a two-and-a-half-year-old little girl. I have another little girl on the way. I know you wanted to talk a bit about your parents, and I'm always asking for good parenting advice, and I'm wondering if you could talk about the influence that your parents had on you and, and maybe in a way that might be instructive on me as I raise um, soon-to-be two little girls. Well, God bless you, and you know who's responsible for this for the sex determination there. <laughs> It's, it's all me. It's you. It's all, it's all on you, Eli. But our daughters will bring a lot of joy in your life. Yep. And uh, when you get my age uh, or even older, you will, they will always remember their dad. Yeah. I just think it's such a blessing to be able to let these kids know that you love them no matter what they do. But at the same time, to try and set an example that hopefully they can follow. And every child is different. I, I can't give you uh, any more guidance than you've already came to this uh, fatherhood with and have learned, subsequently learned, uh, and now have. But each child will kind of have a different personality to try and, I think, in part, get your attention and your love. And you just have to let, let them know that you love them equally. And if they're different children, that's the way God intended. We're all God's children. He loves us all equally. Uh, and just give them certain values that hopefully will stay with them for the rest of their life. And those two girls will, they'll carry your memory with them as long as they live. <laughs> and, and what two, about two the boys, memory of maybe, your parents? Maybe not. But two girls, <laughs> and what about the memory of your parents? You, you, you mentioned that your well, parents Well, they were very important in my life. Uh, yeah. They introduced me to sports. They made it clear you have to have fun in life. My mother never played golf until she met my father. Uh, she ended up being a very good golfer, was champion at Bel Air one year and twice back in Westchester Country Club. Once back in Florida at a place where Bill Simon's mother lived. And my mother's at this event and they're all excited because Bill Simon is running for governor. And it mm. wants to be great if Bill Simon becomes governor. And finally, my mother says, I was just, well, my son is governor of California and he's going to be governor of California after the election in November. <laughs> which I was. Yeah. But anyway, so they taught me an awful lot of things. I do want to give a shout out to my wife. She is just... Please. You always 
tend to marry your opposite, whether you realize it or not. And she's just totally full of joy. Just mm. always sees the positive in everything. And, uh, but she's just, I love her to pieces. And she kind of channels my mother. She never played golf till 2000. And the course we belong to now at Hillcrest, she is has twice won President's Cup. They have the, champ, uh, the wow. championship and the President's Cup, seven years apart. So that brings her great joy, and I'm very proud of her. So the parents are the most influential people you'll meet in life. Your siblings may or may not influence you. Obviously, your spouse will influence you, and you will influence your children. So those are all big responsibilities from the parent to the child. Well, Governor Davis, thank you so much for the time today and for talking to us a bit about your time at Harvard School and your time in politics, your time in the military. You've led an extraordinary life and a great joy to hear your story, and we've learned a lot from you today. So thank you so much. Thank you, Eli. It was great to be with you, and I really appreciate you reaching out to me. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you.